Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impacts these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. Before we get started, if you are loving this podcast, please be sure to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star review and share this episode. So today, I am thrilled to announce our first guest. She is a Clio award-winning business strategist, marketing leader, and investor with nearly 20 years experience building lasting teams and brands for companies spanning CPG, renewable energy, natural products, and cannabis. She currently serves as founder and CEO of Growing Impact. Please welcome Annie Davis. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. And I am welcome to, I'm happy to welcome back our new chief knowledge officer, Dr. Amanda Ryman. Thank you so much. Oh, it's great to be here. Um, so Annie, before we get started, um, could you give our, I know you have a lot of different projects um, in the mix. <laughs> I couldn't list them all, but could you give our listeners a brief overview of growing impact, what you're doing there, and also just a quick rundown of these other companies that you are involved in? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So um, my primary role today in the industry is working as a um, strategy consultant and advisor, primarily serving cannabis operators, though I have begun working with investors as well. Um, and my um, positioning in the industry is really as a you know, kind of cost effective and efficient fractional resource. Um, I My background is as a marketing leader and business development leader, um, kind of high-level business strategy. And I recognize that there are a lot of um, companies in the cannabis industry that I wanted to work with and support, primarily businesses that were led by women or people of color or otherwise impact-driven businesses that oftentimes um, couldn't afford you know, kind of full-time resources, potentially with the type of background and experience that I have and others, for instance, like Amanda has have. Um, and so after spending about four years working in the cannabis industry across a few different full-time positions, I decided to found Growing Impact that I would be able to deliver um, fractional and part-time support um, across a range of um, businesses in the industry, geographies, and, and impact areas. So that's my core business. Um, Growing Impact is I'm based in California, but we work with clients nationally and internationally um, on projects around marketing, business development strategy, but also um, around social environmental impact and really embedding social environmental impact into business strategy, into marketing strategy. So it is not something ancillary, but it can be really core to a business. Um, so that's my core business. I also am an advisor to a handful of cannabis companies um, and funds. I am um, an advisor to an early stage cannabis venture fund called West Creek Investments. Um, we are invested in about 20 companies across the cannabis ecosystem, early stage investments, seed and series A. And I'm also an advisor to a, a cannabis syndicate called Receptive Capital, which enables in, um, angel investors and private investors to write small checks, anything from $2,500 up to fund and support businesses, again, that are primarily led by um, diverse founders um, and women um, and focusing on the growth of the industry in the Northeast. Um, I was born and raised in Massachusetts. So the growth of the industry in New England and the Northeast is of great interest to me, um, despite living in California. 
So those are two of the things that I'm involved in. Um, and then I'm a founding member of the Cannabis Media Council, which is a our founding board member of the Cannabis Media Council, which is a new nonprofit organization that um, is seeking to leverage the power of um, mainstream media to shift stigma and perspective around cannabis. And really we see our objective and our goal as enhancing and improving the brand of cannabis as a whole, not any individual brand within the industry, but really working to rebrand cannabis and the conversations around cannabis by pooling the resources of companies within this space to run widespread advertising and media campaigns. Yeah, I saw an article that said it was kind of trying to pull off a campaign, like a got milk campaign, but for cannabis. Yeah, yeah. In a nutshell, it's similar kind of that was um, similar to like the ad council, um, or you could think about, you know, you oftentimes, yeah, got milk campaigns or um, that was led run by the Dairy Industry of America. Um Recently in California, we've had a bunch of camp, I think a bunch of advertisements for avocados that are from Mexico, for instance. And so there is such a power to collective action and collective advertising. And especially at this moment in time in the industry, given the cash constraints and the funding constraints of businesses, um, no one, brands do not, brands have, do not have very large marketing budgets. They don't have money to spend on mainstream advertising, even if it were accessible to them. The dollars are simply not there. Um, but it is in all of our interests um, as you know, businesses and operators, investors and players in this industry, we all have a stake and we can all benefit from growing the total addressable market for cannabis, um, but also um, these types of campaigns, my theory of change on them is that they can also be helpful from a policy perspective um, in shifting hearts and minds um, with our legislators and our policymakers um, so that we can hopefully decriminalize this plant once and for all um, and open the door for um, the growth of the industry, for safe banking, for all the things that are kind of keeping, keeping us down and making things more challenging for businesses in this industry. Um, the more we can show and demonstrate the positive impact of cannabis on society, on consumers' lives, on reducing our dependence, for instance, on, you know, opioids and alcohol and other things that can be more harmful, um, that those are the things that are going to begin to shift the, to shift, um, shift the conversation and hopefully shift policy. Yep. Well, we are recording this on election day, so there's a yeah, lot of happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm personally in Maryland, so I had a lot of friends uh, texting me or seeing me online and they're like, there's no reason we just want medical, right? We want to vote yes on four. And I'm like, yes, on four. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier you mentioned you've been in such a, a vast like amount of industries in your past. What, how did you get into cannabis? Like what drew you into that? Yeah. Well, um, so many different things that drew me into cannabis. Um, first and foremost, you know, I'm a consumer myself. I consider myself um, both a medical and um, recreational consumer. And we'll go in and we're going to go into the archetypes in a little bit. Um, but for me, cannabis has been a huge support Um both kind of mentally and physically throughout my life and something that until, you know, five, maybe six years ago, I was pretty um, 
cagey about, and it's not something that I that I share widely and publicly. Um, but it's been incredibly helpful um, for anxiety, for sleep, for postpartum support, and I was been passionate for many years about um, you know expanding access and expanding understanding around the plan. Um, so that for me is like number 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 one motivation. Um, but my background professionally prior to cannabis has been about um, 20 years working across the nonprofit and for-profit, nonprofit and for-profit sectors on um, growing, um, on growing the adoption of more sustainable um, and socially impactful business models, products and services. Um, so I spent about eight years working in the renewable energy industry, um, in the solar and the biofuel space, um, advancing the adoption of alternatives to fossil fuels. Um, and I spent about five years working for um, a company in the, the packaging industry that manufactured compostable food packaging, but was also a certified B Corporation, which is a model of business um, where business is structured to deliver um, returns, not only to investors, not only financial returns, but also um, deliver value to society and to the environment. And so throughout my career, I've been really passionate about structuring businesses that deliver not only, you know, economic benefit to society, but also help to leave the world a better place or somehow leave the world less, somehow reduce harm to our planet and to our people. Uh, and so for me, um, cannabis is a perfect example of that type of an industry where we have an opportunity with cannabis to potentially replace a lot of um, you know, consumer behaviors that are harmful. Um, we also have the potential, it's a plant, it grows naturally um, in soil, under sun, um, it can be grown in a really um, in a resource efficient way, it can be a um, environmentally sustainable and friendly agricultural crop and byproduct, it can create jobs, there are all these social environmental impacts from cannabis and from the growth of the sector. Um, and so um, in after many, many years of being um, kind of on the fence about jumping into this industry because of the stigma, finally in 2018, um, when adult use passed in California, where I live, um, I finally felt comfortable kind of making that transition and felt like we have this once in a lifetime opportunity with, with cannabis um, to demonstrate um, how we can build an industry sustainably and socially responsibly, you know, from the start and from the ground up. And that, and that really was my hope. Um, and that's what drew me into cannabis. Um, we are now, you know, four years, um, four or four and a half years later um, from when I entered. Um, I think we, you know, definitely see some great examples of socially responsible and impactful businesses within cannabis, but I would like to see many, many, many more. Um, and that's really what I'm working towards in my work today. Amazing. So you're not just in it for the money. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm not just in it for, I'm definitely not just in it for the money, but I think, we, but, but, as a, but as an industry, we do need to demonstrate to, yeah. especially to investors that like, this is an industry that can make money. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the challenges to many of the operators and companies that I work with right now who are fundraising and trying to access capital is, um, really the uh, constraints on the on constraints on their access to capital on the the pool of available capital um, and part of that is has been driven by you know the failure of some of the early some of the early cannabis 
operators in this business to deliver strong financial results, to deliver strong financial performance. And you can point to like our myriad, you know, range of factors as to why that might be. Um, but in this kind of next phase of cannabis expansion and growth, and as we look at like how we're going to fund and stand up like these licenses in New York, for instance, and New Jersey and these emerging markets, um, we are going to also need to demonstrate that these that you can make money in this industry. Um, and I'm hoping to show to showcase um, how we can both drive positive impact and also make money. And I have a thesis that um, there is an opportunity and potential to bring more impact-driven investors and impact-driven capital into the cannabis industry if we can kind of serve up companies in a lens and in a framework that helps them to demonstrate helps to demonstrate that these companies will actually meet financial goals and returns as well as social goals and returns. Awesome. Well, um, moving on, um, I know, so getting back to kind of the cannabis media, I know that there's been reports about it everywhere. Benzinga um, reported last week, what does the shakeup in the cannabis media industry mean for weeds mainstreaming? Um, you know, Annie, you, as you said, you're the founding member, member of the Cannabis uh, Media Council. How, you know, like what's your mission there? Or how did it have that form? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, our, our mission is really just to, is to leverage the power of advertising to advocate for more mainstream awareness about the benefits of cannabis um, to society, but also to help kind of unravel um, some of the, the myths and, you know, kind of uh, preconceived notions around cannabis that are just so embedded and ingrained in our society due to, you know, decades and decades of prohibition and the war on drugs. Um, I know this is an area of deep passion for Amanda and part of where her background, you know, originated in this industry. Um, but there's still, um, there's still such, there is certainly still such, such, such stigma. Um, and so I think this campaign or sorry, the, the goal of this organization really came about, um, through a lot of organic discussions between, um, primarily women, um, in my network who, um, have been working as marketers in PR in, in, in roles in which we were interfacing with the media or interfacing, um, with like kind of like mainstream publications and realizing that it wasn't kind of any brand's pitch or any company's pitch that was going to kind of get the kind of get the attention of mainstream media, but it was really like industry-wide and industry-level campaigns that we felt would be able to kind of get the attention and kind of get above the noise and the clutter of like all of the information that we all have coming at us every every day. Um and this um, also realization that like we have the creative talent within in, in this industry to really develop super compelling like advertising. You know, you look at like some of Cannes um, campaigns and some of Cannes advertising and how um, they've been able to pull in celebrities um, and really just generate a lot of earned media. Um, but then you have a lot of companies that just don't have. They don't have access to the, that, that talent. They don't have access to those connections. And so how can we create an ecosystem where we're combining like the talent and the production, you know, capabilities of one company with the reach and the network of another um, and really bringing in um, the scaling of resources so that we um, kind of can all work to, to, um, to change the narrative. Yeah. Amanda, you've been in this industry forever. I wanted to get your take on this. Like how big of an impact is like seeing this media council form and come to fruition? 
Oh, well, it's extremely important. Um, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit about who the consumer is and how the consumer is so varied and so different, you know, across the board, but yet they've been represented as kind of the same archetype in every image of cannabis consumption since the 60s. Um, you know, we really haven't evolved. And when I was working at Drug Policy Alliance in 2014, I believe, we did a campaign where we went and did this whole open source uh, photography of cannabis consumers. And it was, you know, an, a man in his seventies, like relaxing and smoking a pipe or somebody using a topical or taking a tincture. And it was representing people of all ages and in all environments. And we put them up on the Drug Policy Alliance website and then we made them open source for media because our big complaint was that whenever the media wanted to talk about cannabis, it was the same picture of like the same white beard with the same like joint kind of hanging out of the mouth. And it was just this stock photography that they would use for every single article. And even if the article was about cannabis helps cancer, you know, symptoms, or, um, you know, people are reducing their use of opiates because of cannabis, it was that same imagery. And so even though the media and legislators and others have evolved on their talking points, if they're still pointing to the same imagery around who a cannabis consumer is, then it's just reinforcing that idea that cannabis consumers are male, that they're hippies, that they're lazy, that they're into partying. And so regardless of what the messaging of the article is, it's that imagery that gets reinforced again and again. And you know, to Annie's point, really thinking about industry-wide, how do we want to represent ourselves and how do we want to represent kind of the interesting people that exist within cannabis consumers? And how do we get mainstream media to take that on and not just take what the easiest route is, which is to just upload the same stock image of Cheech and Chong and use it over and over and over again? So I, you know, I think it, it definitely evolves the market and it evolves media, but to Annie's point, I think from a policy perspective, it's really important that we arm politicians with real images and messaging around who cannabis consumers are when they're going to bat for us at the federal level or the state level with their constituents. Yeah, I think um, I remember uh, Dr. Molly McCann, when she was here, they did the survey during the pandemic. I think one of the biggest increases they showed were um, parents with children 18 and under had increased their consumption during the pandemic. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it was a stressful time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also showing that these are parents. These are these are parents of little kids that are consuming for whatever reason. So I think it's um, I totally agree with that. Um, well, let's talk about consumer archetypes from the New Frontier Data Consumer Survey. So I will throw it over to Annie first, and you could tell me what archetype you are. Yeah. Um, so I'll first start off by saying I love these archetypes. I love this framework. Um, this is, I think, either the second or the third kind of iteration of this work. Um, and the, the last report that you just came out with a brand new report recently, but the last one was like my Bible um, in terms of working with them, like my marketing and branding clients, um, just especially trying to help them really think about segmenting their consumer base by a lot of these kind of like psychographic profiles, not simply demographic profiles, which many of them were doing. Um, and also just realizing like some of these nuances between what makes kind of a medical consumer versus adult use and um, who are adult, I guess, adult use slash recreational. Um, so for me, I think I am a savvy connoisseur 
um, kind of crossed with a contemporary lifestyler. Um, I am a nearly daily consumer and primarily consume flour, um, but I definitely consume for kind of both medical and recreational reasons. Um, I realize I kind of spend as much as the savvy connoisseur. Um, I do have young kids at home. Uh, my kids are four and seven, um, which was, um, a um, key point around, or the savvy connoisseurs really over-index on having having young children or two times as likely to have. Um, and then also, and I think for me, these things are related because um, I'm a working mom, so I don't consume very frequently but during the day, but when I do at the time when I do, I wanna use quality product. Um, and I also need like a range of form factors in order to consume discreetly. So while I wish I could always smoke flour, that is not always the case um, logistically. So I've come to diversify my form factors um, as there have been more and more choices out there. Yeah, that's fascinating, Annie. And I, I think there are a lot of similarities between contemporary lifestylers and savvy connoisseurs. Um, you know, the primary differentiator is the product preference with the contemporary lifestylers leaning more towards this, the smoking consumption almost exclusively and the savvy connoisseurs having more of a varied product arsenal. But as you said, that could be because of what they are able to consume in the environment that they're in. Um, and I also think that there's a shift that happens as we get older. So I'll say, you know, I am a contemporary lifestyler. Um, you know, I'm a primarily a flower smoker, joint smoker. So like super old school, um, you know, I consume for both medical and recreational purposes and I'm a frequent consumer. However, I'm also in my mid forties. Let's announce that to the world. <laughs> and so I find myself kind of starting to lean towards the medical lifestyler um, archetype because my ratio of goals for recreation versus medical shifts is shifting. Mm -hmm. so now I'm finding that my intentions are more around pain relief, uh, sleep, uh, muscle aches, you know, things that happen when you get older versus the kind of overarching, just want to relax or I've had a stressful day. Um, so, you know, to your point earlier, Annie, when, you know, and I'm so glad that you find the archetypes useful. I also think that they're very, very useful in thinking about not just demographics, but actually motivations behind why somebody might use certain products. And as you pointed out, there are certain types, archetypes that are very similar save for one or two differentiating factors. So what comes to mind for me are the medical lifestylers and modern medicinals, both frequent consumers, both primarily for medical reasons, but your medical lifestylers are your flower smokers and your modern medicinals are your edibles and manufactured product consumers. So, you know, you've worked with so many companies and brands trying to figure out this exact strategy. Um, how can brands use this information to kind of really get down to the nitty gritty in terms of differentiating who their target consumer is, even within the umbrella of, let's say, medical consumption? Yeah, yeah. Well, just like, you know, kind of using that as an example. And I think it's, it's, it's I, I actually, I love the distinction between these two, especially the fact that like, in your um in your framework medical lifestylers are smokers like they're smoking flour they're smoking joints just because they're using it for medical purpose doesn't mean that they're not smoking it and i think that's a huge like under kind of like underappreciated and like kind of under recognized distinction amongst honestly like most flour brands in the industry 
because if you look at how like 90 plus percent of flower brands are marketed, they are really marketed to a recreational consumer around like a fun, kind of like fun, social energy. It's the pictures, it's the images, it's the strain artwork. It's not about like how this product is going to make you feel. And I think that that they're missing those brands and there's many of them. And I've worked with some, you know, kind of large MSOs on some of this work as well, um, where I think they're really missing an opportunity to deeply understand kind of to what your, to your point, Amanda, like, why is somebody coming to cannabis? Like, what's the job or the role for which I'm seeking can that I'm seeking cannabis to fill? I may be smoking a bowl, but I'm smoking the bowl to help me sleep or I'm smoking the bowl because I'm anxious before a social gathering. So there's a reason to that. Um, so between these two, um, you know, I think with medical lifestylers, these are people who have been coming to cannabis for years to manage their wellness needs. So they're very familiar with cannabis. They're familiar with smoking. Um, the modern medicinals are often just discovering cannabis or coming into their understanding of the plant. And so I think for the medical lifestylers, there's an element of comfort and reliability to how brands should be marketed and appeal to them. Like these consumers are consumers who trust cannabis to do a specific job for them to make pain go away, to help them sleep, to reduce nausea. And so I think as a brand with these medical lifestylers, you have the opportunity really to tap into like their love and their affinity for cannabis, for smoking, but you can, but you have an opportunity to help them like better navigate to the strains and the product format forms that are going to help them feel the way, the way they want to feel. Um, and so for me, some of this is like, Let's get beyond strain descriptions and actually have visuals that help to signal for consumers while I'm shopping on a venue or a menu on, you know, iHeartJane or I'm shopping in the store, I can quickly find the strain that's going to be good for pain or that's going to help me sleep or what the case may be. And then I think for modern medicinals, they have more of an element of discovery. Um, I think that for in this for this group, they're going to be more comfortable with the product form being something really more similar to what they already know and are comfortable with. So form factors like pills and like edibles, using language that kind of likens this to a supplement or to a vitamin or to something else that's like replacing um, something or that that is similar to a way of consuming a different product in their life they already have. Um, so I think there's very different ways of marketing to these two groups. And I do, I think we see the vast majority of kind of more wellness brand, well, wellness oriented marketing really being catered to these modern medicinals and missing a huge opportunity with the medical lifestylers. Yeah. Um, the other thing I will say is that again, to the bigger, bigger opportunity with the lifestylers, you know, many of these people have consumed from, you know, historically on from the illicit market, and there's still an opportunity to convert them convert them from the illicit market, from the legacy market, you know, to the legal market. So even more so, I think, reason for brands to think about like, how would I get the medical lifestylers into the dispensary if they're not there already? I can get them, if I can convince them that, you know, this brand is always going to solve their problem for pain, then maybe they will never go back to their dealer because they know that they can find the reliable source of pain relief at the dispensary. Well, you know, you, you're making real, first of all, I hope that people that are listening to this are taking notes. If you're a brand <laughs> or retailer out there, Annie is dropping some serious alpha on mm -hmm. how to use consumer archetypes to help further your brand. And, you know, something else that we found from our research. So first of all, you know, your point about the goal of being medicinal versus recreational. I mean, we find that over half consumers say that they're using for both. 
So to assume that somebody is only going to respond to one type of product because they are a recreational consumer or another type of product because they're a medical consumer, as you said, is really missing the mark. And I know that one of the things that brands are really trying to create is loyalty, right? So they want folks to look at them as the go-to brand, whether they're using it for a headache, whether they're using it to sleep, whether they're using it to go to a concert and have fun, that they are trusting that this brand is going to give them what they want. And something we found from our data that was really interesting is that consumers say that they would rather purchase a new product or a new strain from a brand that they trust than seek out that same strain or same product from a brand that they don't know. So, you know, given that when a lot of brands are trying to maintain consumer loyalty and understanding that it's really about your brand versus the product you're offering that's going to keep people coming back, how can brands use this information to develop that customer loyalty? Yeah, it's a really good question. I was actually really surprised to, to see that date that data point because I you know around brand um, brand loyalty because I think that we're you know just maybe now starting to get with this industry to a point where like people consumers recognize brands and that they do actually feel some degree of loyalty to a brand. So I think number one, um, you have a huge opportunity to really envelope your customer and envelope your and surround your consumer with the brand far beyond the product itself. You know, your most loyal fans become your evangelists. Um, and as a brand, you can improve this by, you know, giving them the tools with which to do so. So offering branded merchandise, creating more of a sense of community, both in person and online. Um, also potentially partnering with um, other brands outside of cannabis and other adjacencies on collabs that enable to expand and extend your brand into categories outside of the licensed cannabis market. Um, so it could be um, media, a media partnership. It could be Again, we talk about merchandise partnership. It could be, um, you know, a music collaboration, like ways that you can kind of give this consumer greater touch points with your brand. So it, it is top of mind. I also think that data point points to the opportunity for um, brands to really expand out beyond you know, uh, one or two product forms to potentially have a portfolio that crosses many product forms. And you may say, well, why would the, fl the flower consumer, why would you go from flower into, you know, edibles, but to our, what we just, the point we just had about the savvy connoisseur, um, I'm the savvy connoisseur. And so I may, if I'm loyal to a brand, if they have like a gummy that works for me, if they have flower that works for me and a vape that works for me, and I feel um, emotionally connected to that, I may never leave that brand. I may never have a reason to go elsewhere. Um, and I think that's definitely a distinction um, from what we saw in the, you know, I think your early, I guess it's the early years, some states, but the early years in California, where you maybe just had flower brands and just had edibles brands. Now, that's an excellent point. And we see that in food, right? We see certain companies that make, you know, have several different food products that they have out and they stand behind their brand, whether that's that they're environmentally responsible or that they're healthy or they're vegan or whatever it is, it's their hook. It follows through all the product verticals and people become very loyal to certain brands and will buy all of their different products. And to your point, 
many cannabis consumers are looking for different product types for different reasons, um, even the folks that are the primarily the smokers. So I think, it, and the idea of having non-cannabis partnerships, I think is fascinating. And that was something that I really tried to encourage, um, you know, in businesses that I have worked with that like, you know, the opportunity for people in other states to buy swag with your brand name on it, even if you can't sell them cannabis, you're basically prepping them with name recognition and with knowledge of who you are as a company. So that if, and when the day comes, when you can mm -hmm. sell them cannabis, they already know who you are and you don't have to go into a new market in this very restricted way and just talk about your cannabis products. You've got folks that are wearing your shirts and your hats and telling your story long before their, your product arrives. So I think that is just brilliant advice. I think we're almost out of time, but okay. I wanted to give Annie, because I um, we yes. like to give all of our guests the opportunity to give a shout out to someone in the industry. So Annie, the floor is yours. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, um, the, my shout out will be to, I think will be to Nancy Whiteman, um, CEO, founder of WANA. Um, many people know her. She has had one of the most successful exits in this industry, but the reason I'm shouting her out is as a mentor and as a woman and a fellow ex senior executive in cannabis, she is one of the most giving um, people of her time, her mentorship and her support and um, has been somebody that has been a resource for me for the last several years and for many other women that I know in this industry. And she's been instrumental in bringing together female executives um, to support one another um, so that we hopefully can retain um, more senior level female talent in this industry. Um, and uh, she's using all of her, uh, using a lot of the proceeds from um, her deal with Canopy for, to, to accomplish a lot of good for the industry, um, some of which will be announced um, shortly. So I just wanted to call out Nancy for her support of me throughout my time in cannabis. I definitely second that shout out. <laughs> oh, amazing, amazing, amazing. Well, thank you both so much for your time. This was amazing. Thank you to our listeners for joining us at Canna Week. Please be sure again to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And if you really like us, leave us a five-star review. I am your host, Heather Wickline, and we will see you next time. Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.